Is Europeanism another sort of nationalism? What exactly are the differences between the two? And why is there so much emphasis with European federalism? I'm Ismael Pai Civico, and this is The Civic Podcast. Welcome again to the Civic Podcast. So, as you can see again from the title from today, I want to speak a bit about Europeanism or what I would like to call in some sense European nationalism. And what you're going to say is, man, how can you say that? Because, of course, Europe is not a nation. So how can Europe be nationalistic in some way? Or how can some people be nationalistic? And again, I can I can bring back this to what if you might call a Catalan independence where Catalonia is not a nation but still the Catalan independent movement is a nationalistic movement so there can be various nationalistic movements even though they're not nations in some sense. Scotland is a bit different because Scotland is a country in a sense but it's not a sovereign nation, it's not a sovereign state, the sovereign nation is the United Kingdom uh, in some way so of course the definitions of nation and state or even region if you will um, there are specific definitions, but it's always up for debate. Um, I mean, you can speak about, for example, Israel, Palestine. A lot of people still consider Palestine being also the part of Israel because that's what they call the Palestinian state. But again, the, the term they use specifically is the Israeli colonization, let's say, of that area. So again, um, people can come back and forth on those specific definitions, especially when it comes now to European Union, where, as we all know, there are some people that are looking for some sort of European federalism or a European superstate. Um, or even if even if you would like to call it a confederation, which is a slightly different uh, than a federation in itself. But th- that's a bit the idea what I want to bring forward, because of course we see the European Union as an intergovernmental set of agreements, let's say, from different governments, and then a supranational power or state, that can be the European Commission, um, and on the intergovernmental side, you have the European Council and the European Parliament. So there is some sort of still sovereign sovereignty to the states that actually created the European Union. But there is a movement of people that want a bit to eradicate that sovereign power because of specific oppositions that might be between what you might consider European values and national values from different countries. And this, of course, has also a lot to do with the actual history behind the European Union. The European Union essentially got created as to to oppose to extreme nationalism like we saw with the nazi area uh, era uh, with nazism specifically so that was mainly what all eu states up to today agreed at that point is that you say okay that sort of nationalism that sort of fascism cannot happen ever again so there is some sort of ptsd behind the the european behind the values in the european union and the philosophy the founding philosophy of the european union it's something that we need to internationalize our borders, let's say, open up, um, have discussions with other people, create a certain set of values. That's where, again, um, the fundamental rights of the EU come in and uh, the human rights come in and all of that. So a certain set of common values that we all need to agree upon so we can actually live together and create this EU. At the beginning, the EU didn't start like that as much. It started more like some trade agreements between countries. Um, Well, the... um, it was uh, the European Economic and Steel, what was it called again? 
anyway, something to do with steel and coal. A coalition between European unions is, is a bit embarrassing that I forgot the name of it from the beginning. But anyway, it started like that. It started some common agreements. Um, started with some peace agreements also between countries and NATO. And then again, the European Union uh, started getting created at the end of the 20th century. And then again, with the Maastricht, um, with, with the Treaty of Maastricht, that's when you can call it. That's where we have now, let's say, the kind of European Union we have today. And then with the Treaty of Lisbon after that. So you do have different times in history that has made that the European Union needed to evolve from common treaties and agreements between sovereign states and actual supranational power and governing body that can actually divide the power or divide the resources, let's say, of those countries and a bit organise and also the European Court of Justice, which we'll speak about that just in a second because that actually is one of the one of the pillars that a federal state does need, which is a, a common judicial system, let's say, and in this case, that's where the European Court of Justice comes in. Um, and this is quite interesting because there are some academics that have been, because again, the European Union, nobody actually knows how to define it still. It's still an ongoing project. Uh, it's something that has never happened before, not in this way anyway, not with a certain amount of power given to an actual supranational coalitions between sovereign states. And then after you still have the sovereign power of certain states when it comes from their the constitution, their legal system, their tax system, uh, healthcare, education, and all of that. And then again, within those states, you even have that even division in itself when it comes to those each and every one of those systems or let's say rights or, or policies or however you might want to call it because it's so so diverse and that's why the European Union is just so difficult because it's just so complex to actually understand it very well and how it actually works and I think that's where the big disconnect comes between the European citizens and the European Union itself is the is the big issue in actually comprehending what the European Union does Nobody knows what it what it essentially does. If you tell them you have the Council of Europe, the European Council, and the Council of European Union, it's just like uh, Council of Europe is not in the European Union. Just to just to uh, correct, well, not to correct that, but small detail that I must add because people don't really know what each of them does and what each of them means. And then you see the Council of Europe. You have countries that are essentially um, that will never enter the EU, like Russia, for example. <laughs> and uh, then you need to ask yourselves. Um, what do these countries do in the Council of Europe? What exactly does the Council of Europe do, right? The Council of Europe is a different body, let's say more of a diplomatic body, if you will, more of a human rights watch body um, in some sense. So it's completely different for what is the, the European Union itself. But in, again, in the European Union, you have all these terms, especially the term council, which essentially describes a gathering of people or nations or groups in order to discuss and to agree on certain things. So that's a bit what might be the definition of a council. And why I want to give a bit this uh, this context, why I want to speak about European nationalism specifically, is because you see these people a lot that they say, well, I'm not X, I'm not, I'm not German, I'm not Spanish, I'm not Portuguese, I'm not French, I feel European, right? I feel citizen of the world. Now, in legal terms, is there actually a definition of citizen of the world? It's citizenship can you be a world citizen no you cannot be a world citizen <laughs> there's actually a definition to citizenship in itself and that's why you have um refugees for example nationless people that are not citizens of anywhere and that's a big legal problem people that have no nation that have no rights specifically because they have no nation uh to which they can actually demand those rights too so again there's no such thing as citizen of the world in a philosophical term sociological term cultural term maybe if you will that can be debated in some way um, if you believe in the opening of borders of every single race and country in the world but then again there will be no countries and again you can't have a nation without borders specifically and that was also one of the big debates and 
conversations within the EU in itself. So how can you have sovereign states without internal borders? Well, the whole idea was that, again, a sovereign state did decide to take off those competences from them and give out those rights. So again, they are sovereign because they accepted to those agreements. So if they accepted that agreement, then again, they are sovereign again. So it's a bit complicated and this sort of bit of the legal context of it, or if, if you will, the philosophical uh, or the sociological or sociopolitical definitions uh, you might find between the actual definition of state and of sovereignty in itself. But I see a lot of opposition between the term nationalism and the term Europeanism, because not, not opposition between the terms themselves, but between the people that defend each and every one of them. Correct. So you see the pro-Europeans and the pro-federalists and people that don't really like the idea of of sovereign states. And they're going to come back to that because a lot of people don't actually even agree on what European federalism means. I've asked dozens of people and each one of them gives me a different definition. Um, but what's actually interesting about it is that when you ask a pro-federalist, they're completely against nationalism. Um, and that's all all across, essentially. Uh, if they want European federalism, that means they don't like nationalism. They say, no, I think nationalistic movements or people that are very pro-country, let's say, don't go in accordance with European values of opening borders and being more international, being more diverse, being more inclusive towards other cultures and, and other kinds of people. Um, and then it can go a bit the other way around. The very nationalistic people will go towards the pro-Europeans. Well, you have no country, you have no culture, you have no values. Uh, you just want the pro-globalization uh, kind of mindset that you think a nation can be a nation without any borders. Well, the actual fact is that the EU does have borders, right? So this is why we can actually equate it in some sense to your definition of nation. Now, can we say that inside one nation there are a variety of different cultures and a variety of different ways of living and values, etc.? Yes and no, in some sense. So if you can take that to the United States, for example, on the founding principles of the United States, they did agree on a common constitution. So, and again, at, at that point, we could say, okay, United States actually did agree on a common set of values, did agree on, on a common set of ideas upon which they had to abide in order to have that um, regroupment of nations, let's say, or states, sorry, in this case, of states in order to become a federal state, which is the United States of America, right? In the EU is a bit different. The countries actually decide to come together when they already have their own sovereignty and they're already nations themselves. So again, they have their own constitutions, they have their own history, they had their own parliament, um, they had everything to go with it and they didn't have anything to fight against except at the time, again, the fascist regimes and also at some point when it came to the USSR throughout the 20th century and that's when all the big Marshall Plan from the US came in because again, they wanted to make Europe a liberal state in opposition to a socialist state, how was the big Cold War throughout the 20th century between the United States and the USSR specifically. And Europe was a battleground. Again, you can remember through the Berlin Wall, the whole of Eastern Europe was actually most, most of them were satellite states of the USSR. Um, and then when it collapsed, that was essentially the battle was won by the West in some sense, if you were the West by being the United States and um, the Western European countries. So this is all to put into the context of why I think that pro-Europeanism is actually some sort of nationalistic kind of feeling. So you need to first think about what nationalistic actually means or nationalism actually means. So nationalism essentially means um, a big devotion towards your country, your nation, but most specifically the, the hunger for power and the belief of superiority above others, right? So that's essentially what nationalism means in opposition to patriotism. So patriotism, 
I mean, these definitions are, are so abstract in some way because you can always turn them to, to your own narrative, if you will. So it's always easy to mistake them one another. But when it comes to patriotism, it's more the love for your culture, the love for your values, the love for your people and the people that abide for those values. So if, if you speak about um, United States patriotism in some way, a lot of United States patriots will love the people that come and actually accept their values, right? They will consider them also real patriots. This is very interesting. I was speaking with a friend um, about Muslims, like an, an internal joke Muslims have that usually people that enter Islam by their own free will are most of the time a lot better Muslims than actual Muslims themselves, right? And, th and they have like this internal joke. I, f I forgot about it. They had to, uh, there was this name they gave them. Why? Because you actually opted into that religion. You opted into that set of values. So it was super interesting to see in some way, which actually kind of is true. You see a lot of people um, essentially, well, in Spain, uh, people that come from outside or in France or in Belgium or whichever country, especially in the United States, I'm gonna, I'm, I'm gonna, I think it's mostly prominent in the United States when you see a lot of people uh, coming from Latin America, coming to the US and being even, even more nationalistic, quote unquote, than actual Americans in the United States. So this kind, <laughs> these kind of phenomenons are so interesting because then you ask yourself, how come they can have a, a stronger feeling of belonging than myself to that specific area? And you see that a lot also in, 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 um, in the European Union. Most of the people I know that are very pro-EU are people that weren't necessarily born in the EU, come from outside the EU, or at the time their country wasn't even in the EU, right? So this is a pretty prominent phenomenon all around the world, not just in some specific places like might be the, the European Union, specific countries in the European Union, or even the United States in itself. This mainly regrouping Western countries, or as might you have, for example, in England, um, Pakistani or Indian migrants, if that when they're at the time, or even Turkish or from whichever country, they feel very, very British. They feel very British in some way, even more British than most Brits. So you need to ask yourself those specific questions. How can that might be? Um, and that happens a lot with, with, with the European Union. That European Union brings a lot of advantages, of course, but also a lot of disadvantages towards other specific kind of country. So the EU is not perfect and that all we all know. And that's something I keep saying. So even the term Euroscepticism, I'm, I'm really not fond of because again, the term skeptic, skeptic essentially means question everything, essentially. Um, you question everything, if it works, if it doesn't work, even what might seem true. Um, so Cartesian skepticism, if you will, that knowledge is an impossibility in some way because you always need to keep questioning everything that you know, everything that you might know or might think that you know. And that comes to saying, that's why I don't like that. That word, Euroscepticism, that essentially got created, that the definition now is people that are against the EU. Again, I've repeated numerous times, I'm a Eurosceptic, but I'm not against the European Union, which it might be difficult to comprehend, but my whole reasoning behind that is that I'm always gonna ask myself the question, if that thing that the EU did is actually the best policy to come forward and to actually become a better European Union, whatever the definition of better European Union might be, or whatever the common good might be. Again, the common good is the that big question always used by politicians in order to push their own ideas or their own values or their own policies. I want to bring forward is all for the common good. We've heard it so many times heard it through fascistic regimes, communist regimes, nationalistic regimes. Every single regime will use that same term, the common good. Now, what the common good actually is, we don't actually know that. We need to find out for ourselves. And this was interesting because I googled the term uh, Europeanism and, the f and, and it came up that European values focus on 
the equality of outcome than the equality of opportunity because they believe that the future should be secure the best way possible or something like that. You can Google it. Google uh, Europeanism and then it should pop up European values and then something like that should pop up. It's actually quite interesting. So people actually agreed that we should actually focus on the outcome than the opportunity itself. And that's a bit odd in my in my sense because that goes completely against what liberalism actually represents. Liberalism represents the, the, the equality of opportunity, the equality of everyone should have the opportunity to do whatever they want in life, to be whoever they want, to love whoever they want, to devote their life to whoever they want if they will and not whoever because God is not who specifically but whatever you would like to to define that in whichever way possible and that's more or less the definition of liberalism upon the values that the EU was actually based upon and now we see that that goes in a completely different way so the actual EU wants to impose a bit their own ideology or their own set of values across the member states and this is a bit interesting what happened now because after Brexit of course the the situation of the EU is very very fragile the EU is really worried if countries now are going to come up and start wanting to get an out of the EU. You see that big division between Western and Eastern Europe nowadays, which honestly is getting a bit a bit worrying. You see Eastern Europe completely in their own bubble, Western Europe in their own bubble, and the other Scandinavian countries are just doing their own thing and being awesome, absolutely everything, like all the time. So I don't think they really care much about all the all the uh, all the tit for tat or all that opposition or all that, let's say, conflict that's happening underneath them, I don't think they really care. It's just like, you guys do you. We have an awesome life. We have awesome countries. And you guys just keep well, um, fighting for useless and meaningless things while we keep advancing, essentially. And China's do the same thing. So China, I mean, they live off conflict, right? They live off Western conflict. Every time there's a conflict within the West, China goes out and starts clapping and starts having champagne. Uh, so that's also very, very funny when in the end we are just, we are the product of our own demise, essentially. Um, we are creating a an atmosphere where it makes it impossible to progress and to dialogue and to actually make a better European Union or better countries in some way. And I've been shifting a bit the conversation because I want people to actually understand my stand behind the EU. Again, those countries that without the EU, they would have failed a long time ago like spain if spain would have, would have wouldn't have entered the in, in the eu uh it would have been in a really 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 bad position for a long time uh, especially judicially speaking and legally speaking because there are some things that they've tried to do and then the eu came and said no you can't do that that's that that's completely against every single um well eu international law if you will eu law every single thing that we actually stand for which might be for example the independence of of um of the judicial system, right? When it comes to the division of power, Spain has tried to play with that for way too long. And then each time the EU has to step in and say, okay, guys, you can't do that. So stand back. So it's actually some very good things come from the EU. And here I'm gonna come back to European Court of Justice. So the European Court of Justice is actually one of the pillars that you need in order to have a federal state. You do need a a common judicial system, right? What actually was actually remaining from what can be considered the EU a a federal state is a tax and spend policy specifically so a common fiscal policy for the whole of the eu which is not necessarily there yet i mean there is but indirectly throughout the member states themselves so again it's not a common eu fiscal policy uh in some way and the other one was indeed to some sort of uh common eu constitution let's say or have the decision making power only towards the big central government what might be the eu government but right now you do have sovereign states, the member states of the EU that still have some sort of power 
the power of decision, the power of veto for specific other things. So let's give an example. Um, for a country to enter the EU, countries to have the right to veto, right? That country. So again, that country does hold certain amount of power. Then again, is that good or is that bad? Because a country can actually block the wish of the 26 other countries of the EU. So there's always that debate going on and we are at a tipping point actually thinking what's the best way to go forward within the EU. I don't know the answer to that yet, unfortunately. I'm just asking the questions and hoping people try to find the answers for themselves and see what they actually believe in. Um, my problem with the EU is, is that the EU is so diverse. Again, uh, one of the one of the motives of the EU is united in diversity, uh, right? So to actually believe that the EU is a, di is a diverse organization, let me call, right? I'm gonna call it organization for, for, for lack of a better word right now, or a diverse project of different nations coming together and wanting to build peace among them, prosperity, good standard of living, a good welfare state, um, good migration policy to have people come in and actually thrive in our country, in our way of, in our countries, sorry, uh, in our way of living and, and how we like to see the world, how, how we like to interact with each other. I do believe the EU should be that. Now, right now, again, like we said, after Brexit, the EU is getting a bit more unstable, let's say, or very scared that it might happen with other countries. So their other choice is actually trying to make the EU stronger. So by what I mean, stronger, more centralized and more federal in some way. So they try to reduce the possibility of that happening within the other member states of the European Union, because again, that would just completely fail. If another country leaves the EU, the EU is going to fail. Um, so, so they can't let that happen whatsoever. The UK had its own specific situation in some way, and I can speak about Brexit at a at a number at, at another moment. I still believe it was a big mistake, Brexit in itself. But again, that was what the people voted for, and then even again, democracy has its flaws, and maybe that's one of them. But the alternative is not better either. I don't think there's, there's an alter, there's an alternative to democracy. Um, a friend once asked me. What do you prefer, a, pros a prosperous dictatorship or a miserable democracy? So what I mean by that, so a dictatorship or where you might not have a full-fledged democracy, that might be Singapore, for example, or other Asian countries, where then again, they have a really good standard of living and really good way of life. But then again, it's not a full democracy. Or do you prefer a democracy and actually the standards of living being very low and poverty and all of that? Um, and that's not an easy question to ask yourself. What actually do you prefer from those two? It's a big dilemma. Do you prefer to be a dictatorship and not really have your own say in your own national politics or what you actually want from your country? Or do you prefer to actually be a democracy, but in the end, having that, mm, having that possible issue that actually might occur with democracy in itself that people might not make the best decisions because of course people are not perfect. We, we, we all have our imperfections and I think that actually what's defined is that something we need to actually realize that most of our decisions are gonna be the wrong decisions. Now, what we do about those decisions, about those wrong decisions, do we actually learn from them or do we just keep making the same mistakes? That's a different conversation. But essentially what I said, I prefer an, imperf an imperfect, dem uh, I prefer democracy and an imperfect way of living than a non-democracy like a dictatorship or just a half democracy and have a prosperous life. Why? Because you need to leave the people actually make their own decisions. If you don't, that's just gonna be imposed supranational power upon them and it's just gonna create havoc and chaos and that is nothing good whatsoever and also because it doesn't respect the basic fundamental rights that upon which I do believe in. Um, so again, those are very, very difficult, difficult questions. And 
when it comes to delimitation of the European Union, and it's going to come back to the answer of the initial question, is Europeanism a sort of nationalism? I do believe it is, again, because nationalism, like we said before, it doesn't necessarily need to be a, a nation, a a legally recognized nation in order to be nationalism in some way, because anything that changes at that point is the geographical delimitations. So when you speak about French nationalism, right, you, you, you delimit France as a country geographically, plus its people inside, plus the central government of France. Now, if you speak about European nationalism in some way, you delimit the European Union by its external borders. You will put a central state that in your case, well, in, in the case of, of of a nationalistic European, quote unquote, it will be the European Commission or the actual European institutions that actually centralize that power, plus the people inside of it. So again, the only thing that changes essentially is the delimitation of the country because it's a lot larger, like in the United States, you can be a very hardcore Texan and defend Texas to the death, and then also be actually a big United States defender because again, the, the border just becomes bigger and someone can be a um, an American nation, nationalistic person. He can be very, very nationalistic. There can be a big nationalism inside the United States in itself, when again, it's the size of the European Union. Uh, maybe bigger, maybe smaller, but you get the idea, like a big continent actually being one single sovereign state. And that's what I mean by nationalistic Europeanism in some way. So people that actually believe that the European Union should be one body, the European Union is God. The European Union has the best values and all of that. Now we can speak about values because of course if you have your own values you, you're supposed to think that your values are the best are better than others because then again why would you have those values if you don't think that? You can't think they're the same because then again you don't have a hierarchy of values. Um, so that's a big discussion to have behind those values. What kind of values do you have and do you actually think that your values are better than other values? If not, why do you have those values and not those other values if you think that they might be better? Right? So all these questions are questions that are really worth asking, especially when it comes to European Union. What are the common values that the European Union actually has? What are the common values that Europeans actually share? And it's not always an easy question because then again, each country has their own history, has their own culture, has their own language, uh, has their own way of seeing things. And the EU has been trying to, 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 to let's say, bridge that gap and uh, fill in the blanks and make Europeans be able to prosper together, which to some extent it has worked quite well uh, throughout the past decades, but with its flaws. So I'm really looking forward to see whether the European Union is gonna take us forward now. Uh, there are very good things that come out from the EU, but we still need to keep contesting the flaws that it has. And I don't think that European federalism is the best way forward. Again, European federalism has a, well, an infinite amount of different definitions. I mean, I've heard for me, European federalism is just having a, a common set of border regulations where I can agree to that to some extent. There are also some things that have, that have been left unclarified in my mind, but a set of um, regulations uh, to the borders in itself, a common fiscal a common fiscal policy, which again is actually one of the pillars also when it comes to federalism in itself. You already have the European Court of Justice, so that can be actually considered as one of the pillars, like many academics have said that the European Union, even though it's not a federal state, um, or a confederation of states, uh, as a matter of fact, there are some criteria that they actually do fill in already when it comes to creating that state and the European, and the European Court of Justice being one of them, correct? So again, there are the, there's still a long way to go. Most people believe that the European Union will never become a federal state. 
Um, I believe that personally it will never work out within the countries themselves. They will never give out that power. Again, the Polish Supreme Court right now just ruled that actual European legislation is not doesn't go in accordance with the with the Polish constitution. So there are some questions like that that are actually starting to be asked in different countries and that is actually uh, quite problematic. Again, problematic because of the answers we found, not problematic that people actually ask the questions. You're supposed to ask the questions. Asking questions is never problematic. What might be problematic afterwards when you actually have the answer and you didn't have the answer that you expected or the answer that you hoped. When you get that answer, then you can actually start finding those solutions to the answer that you were not expecting. And that's essentially the questions we need to keep asking ourselves when it comes to the EU. And I do think that European nationalism uh, can be bad, can be good, like general nation nationalism or state nationalism can be good and can be bad specifically. Um, so there are things to say. And yes, there are some parts. Again, yes, there are a lot, a lot, there's a lot of European nationalism that is really bad. Like there is a nation nationalism that is really bad. But then again, I don't like this double standards and this hypocrisy coming from the pro-EU federalists a lot of the time saying I'm completely against nationalism. Then not them not themselves realizing that the kind of thing that actually are defending or the kind of things they are saying or their whole overall narrative is also some sort of European nationalism. It's just that the borders get extended even more to a bigger geographical area. It covers a wider range of, of territory, it being the European Union. So that's a bit of double standard I wanted to speak uh, speak through a bit. And of course, you take the historical context in the political context, the social context, the cultural context of every single thing we speak about. But that's something really, that's something really is worth noting because we are going to see really soon a big shift in the European Union. And that's something that interests me a lot. I really want to see where we're going to go with this. Uh, and I still have to make up my mind exactly what's the best, what would be the best EU state? Oh, sorry, what would be the best European Union? Not EU state, what would be the best European Union? And what would be the best way for states to cooperate between them and actually have common common trade agreements, uh, common market, free movement within those states, um, and so on and so forth. Everything that actually defined the European Union from its founding values and what people in the EU actually defend or should defend, uh, depends for who. Anti-EU, then yes, of course, they don't defend the common, the common market. Some of them do, some of them don't. They don't defend the, the freedom of movement. Some of them do, some of them don't. Again, the definitions are, are very abstract and each person defines it in the way he or she deems better to define it as. So it's nothing easy, but I do think there are questions worth worth asking and especially when it comes to the to the term nationalism, because I think it's been kind of badly used, especially like this PTSD like I was speaking about before, from the European Union, uh after of course Second World War. So of course there's some kind of PTSD within our culture in itself. We don't want countries to do what other countries did in the past, like all the fascistic countries that there were in Europe at the time, also throughout the 20th century, and the Nazi regime. So it wasn't just the Nazis, let's not forget that. I mean there were other dictatorships all around Europe, uh and also in Eastern Europe. Um so it's not as old as we might think. Some things like that are also quite recent and it's always worth asking the right questions and say, okay, how can that not ever happen again? And how can we actually make the right balance between what it should be, but what it can be? Um, so again, I'm going to leave it there for today. I really hope you liked today's episode. We'll be keep posting a, a lot more content again, like always. And again, if you like, feel free to go and look at our website where we have everything on there at the civicspace.org. 
that is our website. And if you would like to send a specific topic you would like me to discuss specifically, if you're free to send an email to contact at thecivicspace.org. Don't forget to follow us on Instagram, which is at thecivic.space, on Twitter, that is at thecivicspace, <laughs> and then on Facebook, you can also find us, which is uh, the Civic Space, just like that. So facebook.com slash the Civic Space. It's all the civic space except on Instagram, which is at the civic dot space because civic space was already taken by someone. We'll see if we can buy that name back because it doesn't seem like it's a very, very active Instagram account. Uh, ours isn't still either. Okay, I get that, but hoping that soon enough there'll be a lot more Instagram content and social media content uh, to go with that. So again, thank you everyone for listening. Don't forget if you like the podcast, follow, like, share. It always helps. And uh, well, I guess this comes to the to the closing. I'm Ismael Pacifico and this was the Civic Podcast. Thank you.